Are you there, God? Bo's afraid, because the other fellow is going fast. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Groovy. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. We've got a load of new movies to uh, look at today that Van has already seen. Fast 10, or Fast Whoa. X, as Van likes to call it, is on the list, and I can't wait to hear what he thinks about it. Um, but before that, some some serious discussion to be had because um van wants to dedicate today's podcast to somebody very special yes so this week uh saw the sad passing of uh my great friend and for lack of a better term cohorts uh, alan frank uh who is literally the reason i do this job the way i do right now like i genuinely owe my career in its current form to Alan Frank. He was an absolutely incredible man. He was the film critic for the Daily Star for 35 years. He came up in a time when there weren't many film critics. He used to go to screenings and he would tell us, you know, there was like four of them. Barry Norman was one of them. People like that. He worked at Granada in the 70s. He literally wrote the book on horror movies. And I say that he wrote four of them, in fact. And they, if you, you can go on Twitter right now and uh, read about people sharing their memories of Alan's, you know, work writing about horror movies and how they fell in love with them, those books as kids. And uh, and I'm really going to miss him. He passed this week, and uh, he was just an incredible man. And uh, I, I met him at an, at for the very first time in 2014 at an evening screening of the movie Labor Day with uh, Josh Brolin and Kate Winslet. And uh, nobody remembers that movie. Nobody. I remember it forever because <laughs> I remember that's where I met Alan Frank. Tony Earnshaw, my, my friend Tony Earnshaw uh, from the Yorkshire Post. Uh, he and I were at that screening and he said, oh, look, there's, there's Alan Frank. Have you met him? And I, no, I've never met him. Don't, I, I know the name. I've never met him, though. So oh, you've got to meet him. Come on, he's out. And, uh, and yeah, he, he absolutely lived up to Tony's description of him of uh, as a hoot. And it was about a year or so later... I was at a screening of M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit at Universal. It was first thing on a Monday morning at Universal. And I went along. I'd gone all the way from Sheffield to just for this one screening. And, uh, and I, I met Alan there. I thought, oh, I'll say hello. I don't know if he'll remember me. And, uh, and he, I don't know whether or not he did at the time, because Alan was very good at never letting on if he didn't remember you. And uh, he seemed to just take a liking to me. And, uh, and after the screening, he said, uh, he said, oh, are you coming to the next one? And, and I, oh, I, I'm not invited. I, I, I don't. I, I didn't know. I didn't apply or anything. He said, "Oh, bleep that! Uh, come along, come along. I'll take you." And he took me along to uh, the Soho screening rooms with him, uh, which you know the older film critics refer to as Mister Young's because that's what it used to be called. It's now the Soho screening rooms, and uh, and we just he walked in. He introduced me to the publicist. Uh, the movie we saw was Legend, the craze movie with Tom Hardy. And uh, and then I stuck around. He just took, dragged me along to all of them for the rest of that day. I went home that night. Uh, he, he got my email at some point, and he, he sent me the following week's screening schedule. And he said, I, "I trust you're coming to next week's," and and I did. And that's how then we just became fast friends. And I, every time my girlfriend and her parents were in London with me, whenever we would take trips and things like that, he would always insist on taking us all out to dinner. And everything. We, we spent some time with his, his late wife, Jill, who in and of herself was a legend in her own right. Uh, she passed in 2017, in July 2017, uh, while, literally while we were watching Spider-Man Homecoming, he and I, and uh, one of my sadder memories. And, uh, and she, was, she was amazing. And, uh, he, and she was the grown-up in the relationship. He was kind of like me. He was, just a, he was a great big man-child like me. He was a giddy, 
just wacky animated character. If he didn't like you, he would let you know. Like you would know very, very quickly. He, I think he thought he was being subtle. He had no subtlety. The man, the man just <laughs> did not know subtlety, and uh, and and he's gone now. And I'm I'm really gonna miss him. So we're gonna dedicate this episode to Alan. So wherever he is, I, I hope he's palling around with Peter Cushing in the sky, somewhere, as his daughter said. But uh, yeah, okay. Well, um, yeah, he will be sadly missed by the sounds of it. I mean, I didn't obviously know him, but um, you know. Of course, I'm, I'm I'm sorry for for your loss and uh, the loss of everyone else who who knew him. So let's move on to the movies, which is the reason we are here. Of course, um, let's talk about the first movie today. Uh, if you have ever heard the name Dave Gorman, we have had this discussion. Man, <laughs> you'll yeah. you'll kind of get the idea of this. It's called the Other Fellow. Talk mm-hmm. us through it. So, as you just pointed out, Dave Gorman kind of did this about 20 years ago as a book and a TV show, I believe, when he just, I think it was called Are You Dave Gorman or My Name Is Dave Gorman, where he went around and found other people named Dave Gorman and got to know what their lives were like. Here you've got more or less the same concept, but it's about men named James Bond. Brilliant. And we, we literally, through the form of this documentary, get to explore the very different lives of this just disparate, collection of random human beings uh, or male obviously uh, named James Bond and there's there's some variety in here we, we're talking about like you know uh, men who served in Iraq we, we're talking about uh, overseas couriers there's, there's a Texan a preacher at one point there's, a, there's an oil rig worker the works have a listen for yourself this is this is the other fellow as I grew older I went and watched every single one of them that came out the spy who loved me from Russia with love they never stop. My name is James Lee Bond. I'll be 87 the 5th day of September. I just never did care for James Bond on his movie. It, was, it wasn't my prototype. When the first James Bond movie hit our city, I was in the seventh grade. If you were in the Assemblies of God Church, you didn't go to movies. It was forbidden, but suddenly I picked up a new nickname. I became Double O. Out of the plethora of personalities you described there that all have the name James Bond, I'm assuming none of them work for MI5. I mean, could they admit it if they did? (laughs) I don't know. True, good point. There is, uh, as I say, it, it, it's more of a curio than anything. It's only about 80 minutes long, this documentary. It's uh, written and directed by Matthew Bauer, and it, as I say, it just features an assortment of very wacky characters. Uh, there's not much m- much of a through line to this. It literally just is random stories of men named James Bond. Um, there is one man in particular. Uh, trying to, his name is Gunnar Schaefer. His full name, however, is Gunnar James Bond Schaefer. He am <laughs> the James Bond himself. So I think that's a cheat. That is an absolute chief. You've added yourself. One of these yeah. men as well, and this one blows my mind. His name is actually James Bond Jr., which I, in a sense, think is cooler because that's a forgotten animated show from the 1990s in which James Bond's nephew was the central character. Why he was Jr., given that he was the nephew, I'll never understand. But, yeah. Um, there's a couple of fascinating stories in in, in, in this to be found. Um, there is one gentleman, um, uh, African-American gentleman named James Bond, who's uh, experienced actual persecution because of the name, for instance, who's actually gotten in trouble with the legal system. And judges have actually found him, determined him to be contemptful for asking him, for instance, what's your name? And his reply being James Bond. 
and the assumption then is that he's taking the Michael, so to speak. So they, and they've and they've literally locked him down for sixty days for things like that. Um, there is uh, another young, there's a, a, a woman in there who escapes an abusive relationship, for instance, and in order to uh, protect her child, she and her child from you know her psycho ex. One literally chooses the name for her son James Bond because it's too hard to Google. You couldn't Google James Bond without, but you think that's actually genius. Genius, um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's say there's some fascinating stories. There's some that aren't really that compelling, and you do get the impression that this might have worked better as a 45 minute one-off, you know, Channel Four, you know, weeknight kind of documentary one-off kind of a thing, rather than a feature-length thing. But for what it is. It's quite compelling. Like I say, the, the, those stories I've just given you there, that's, that's two out of maybe maybe a dozen stories. Gunnar James Bond Schaefer, meanwhile, has parlayed his adopted name into literally opening a museum so that he can profit off of it. And, uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it, 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 it's quite... It's some, he's quite insane. Uh, but there's, there's some characters in there. There's loads of people who, like, actively hate being named James Bond because... You know, as, as they put it, as they put it, you, you can't order a pizza, you can't get a taxi to come to your house because people just assume that you know you're not not on the level. This uh, famously was a story a few years ago for a woman named Jennifer Lopez, as well, who uh, was interviewed in the press and said that being named Jennifer Lopez had ruined her life. But what was she going to do? And you get to see that kind of writ large here with several uh, several different figures. Um, not something I think you necessarily should actively go out and seek, but it's a it's a documentary that I think if you came across it, for instance, on telly, then I think you'd be you'd be quite taken with it. So I think there's enough to hold on to with it. But do you know what? It's no Dave Gorman. I got to give it. That. <laughs> no, that was the original, and definitely never going to be beaten. But I mean, this sounds like a nice Sunday afternoon slouch on the couch kind of thing, and watch you know just to chill out, really. But you can make your exactly. own mind up because that's in cinemas from today. Um, okay, next we are going to look at Bo is afraid. Now I I don't know if I always get his name right. Is it Whacking Phoenix? Did you say whacking phoenix? As whacking. in I as in I am whacking phoenix. <laughs> no, it's like whacking. Is that right? I think he's Joaquin. I think he's actually oh, Joaquin wa- Joaquin originally. But you know, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, let's call the whole thing off. We'll be back in a moment with Bowie's Afraid. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Let's look at another new movie that is out today in cinemas. Bo is Afraid. So, um, yeah, how was this, Van? I mean, let's not bury the lead, Mr. Bull. Yeah, it was very... Right, Let let me just preface this by saying that the buzz around this movie has been very, very divisive. Okay, so... This, you know, it's an A24 movie which sets some people on edge immediately. Not so much me. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a film hipster bro type. I suppose I'm kind of adjacent to that. So the A24 thing works for me. And also, it's a movie written by and directed by Ari Aster, which again sets some people on edge. And Ari Aster, if you're not aware of this, uh, directed, wrote, directed Hereditary, um, and uh, and Midsummer, which. If you're going to bring out your first two movies and you're bringing out movies like Hereditary and Midsummer, wow, you've got some you've got some gumption and and he does. He's he I think he's brilliant. I, I think Ari Aster is absolutely brilliant. This then becomes the difficult third album. This then becomes 
the be here now of it all. So, what's it going to be? Is it going to be be here now? Some critics loathed, loathed it. Some critics loved it. The fact that it is two hours and 59 minutes long would seem to be a factor in that. I jokingly said to the publicist before we started watching this, well, you know, it's like three hours. Goes, uh, excuse me. No, it's not three hours. It's 2.59. Like, okay, fair, fair, fair that makes all the difference. Yeah, it was, it was, it was Zach. He was, he was, he was having a laugh with it, but uh, you know, fair play to him. So this stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix, as you point out, and he is, of course, Bo. Bo lives, as the title would suggest, in a state of perpetual fear. A very neurotic, very weak man who lives in a sort of slum area, lives in a sort of crappy rented apartment in a slum area that looks an awful lot like that motel that Robocop raids in Robocop 3. When he goes <laughs> when he goes on the spree and shoots all of McDaggett's OCP armoured SWAT team guys, that, that CD motel he goes to, that is basically where Joaquin Phoenix lives in this movie. Right. Uh, like, whole buildings surround by crackheads with various different, like, seriously debilitating, threatening mental health issues. And one day his mother passes, unexpectedly. And uh, he sets out on what can only be described as an odyssey in, 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 trying to, uh, in trying to return home for her funeral. He goes on a journey that will literally teach him not only who he is himself, but who he's going to be, who he could have been, who he's always been, and who the woman he loves truly is as well. Now, I've got a clip for you, and this comes from a section of the movie in which Bo has been injured and uh, wakes up to find himself in, in a strange suburban home being cared for by a couple um, I'm trying to remember that they are played by, it's Nathan Lane plays the husband, and I think it's uh, Amy Ryan, I almost said Amy Adams, Amy Ryan uh, playing the wife. Have a listen. Am I dead? No, no, you've been healing so quickly, and n no organs were hit, and your, your bleeding was really mild. What this is a room is? This is a room in our house, but it's your home for as long as you need. My name's Grace. Oh, this is Roger. This is my husband. Hey, Kai. Welcome back. Thought you'd sleep in, huh? Roger's a very respected surgeon. He's the one who dressed and treated your wounds. You're a lucky man. What was this? That's my little assistant health monitor. Keeps track of your condition. So, uh, from what I'm gathering here is mm -hmm. the majority of that two hours and 59 minutes is based on the journey from his crackhead block of apartments mm -hmm. to his mum's funeral and you just kind of pick up the adventures as we go to an extent there's this a lot more there's a lot more to it than i have described and you know when i say this is a movie about life the universe and everything to quote douglas adams uh I, that that would be a fairly apt description it's bonkers For, if you had to give it one word bonkers uh joaquin phoenix of course let's, let's start with joaquin phoenix, joaquin phoenix is amazing in this, but you know, he's awake, so of course, he's amazing. Joaquin Phoenix, you know, the, the man has an Oscar to his name, of course, he does. I'll still I'll go to my grave maintaining that he got that Oscar for the wrong movie, but and he should have had it for You Were Never Really There a couple of years, a couple of years prior. But you know, he he very much demonstrates here that yes, he's he's very he's very much still the guy deserving of of of, of that Oscar. Um, terrific performance, he gets to do a lot with this character there's many many different facets that we get to explore with Bo 
and uh, and, and also there's, there's quite a scene stealing turn in there from of all people Parker Posey as uh, as the adult incarnation of his childhood love interest which uh, is a character I found strange parallels in if I'm getting into my own personal life but <laughs> the real star of this movie it's your boy Ari Aster. The man has got it. Right. Let us never, as a species, okay, we have to keep Ari Aster and Charlie Kaufman apart forever. We can never allow those two to meet because evidently they're as twisted as each other. I was watching this thinking, it's like, it's a Kaufman movie. This, this feels like a Kaufman movie, like adaptation or being John Malkovich. And it's very much in the vein of movies like this. If you're a fan, incidentally, of adaptation or being John Malkovich, you, you owe it to yourself to, to leg it and seek this out. I mean, this could be right up your alley if you love those movies. Um, the production design of it is stellar, top-notch. The visuals, there's some really just incredible stuff here. That it's, it's just very imaginative. It just takes you to... It's almost like watching a live-action Looney Tunes episode mixed with a Dali painting at times. If you, if you can imagine that. If, if Salvador wow. Dali went and worked at Looney Tunes in the 40s and then they decided to adapt it for live-action, you'd have something close to how this feels at times. Uh, it's extremely adult, uh, very grim, very dark, but also quite surreal, quite comedic, quite dark-hearted, quite satirical at times. I mean, it makes statements uh, on on very specific facets of society that I found oddly compelling. And again, I, I just it's all, it all hinges on this really wonderful performance from, from Joaquin Phoenix, who just doesn't disappoint. I mean, he's she's so just terrific here. Now, I, I fall very heavily into the in, onto the side of, of film critics who loved this movie. I I can understand people who didn't to an extent because I mean for one thing the runtime is a challenge. I didn't find that I particularly felt that runtime. I, it kind of breezed by for me, but it's worth noting the movie we're going to talk about next is two and a half hours long, and I didn't check my watch until about an hour in, and that was only because you know I wanted to know how much more awesomeness I had ahead of me. Um, same kind of thing with this. The, the only reason you're going to be checking, you know, I was checking my watch during this, was just like, oh, this is really compelling me. But, you know, this is supposed to be three hours long. How long have I been watching this? I think the first time I checked my watch, it had been around an hour and 15. So, well, okay, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Um, it is my least favourite of Ari Aster's films. You know, I have to, I have to admit that. And I'm not going to lie, that runtime is kind of part of the problem. It doesn't, doesn't, I don't, didn't find it was baggy. There's nothing you would cut from it, I don't think. I think its story works quite compellingly. And I want to single out as well, and he's, I'm going to have to read his name here. It's, uh, his name was Armin, where are you, Armin? Armin Nahapishan plays uh, the teenage incarnation of Bo, and you can see him on some of the posters in which, uh, some of the posters, some of the marketing, he has, has got his own character poster. He plays the teen incarnation of, of Bo, of Joaquin Phoenix's Bo, and I genuinely thought he was a visual effect. I Through the marketing, wow. I, I genuinely thought they had just done a de-aging job on Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is such such is the cynicism of modern cinema. We've now reached a point of contemporary cinema in which you could just cynically, dismissively assume that an incredible teen actor is just a visual effect. And yeah, so Armin uh, Nahapishan, I, I would like to single him out. I thought he was very good in this as well. But like I say, to be honest with you, if you're an A24 fan or an Ari Aster fan, you're going to see this anyway. And if you are very specifically not an A24 fan or an Ari Aster fan, you are never going to see this and you are never going to enjoy it. But I think it's worth a chance. I think it's great. Well, there you go. If you want to see it, it's out in cinemas from today. Bo is afraid. Uh, right, we are on to the big one next. Uh, it's in its third decade and still going strong. We're going to see what Van thought of Fast 10 in just a sec. And now it's time for a segment we like to call Off Screen Pays the Bills. Hey, Adam. Hey, Van. What's going on? Ain't nothing going on but the rent. You know how it is. And so we're delighted to thank our sponsors for this week, the good folks at NordVPN. Get yourself some industry-leading online security today with more than 5,000 servers in 60 countries. Want to protect your privacy online? NordVPN. Going on holiday and don't want to miss EastEnders on iPlayer? Boom, NordVPN. I've been using NordVPN for a while now. My MacBook, my iPad, phone. Hell, I've even set it up my home router so I can watch Stargate on Netflix from the US. Oh yes, you can access other countries' versions of your favourite streaming platforms. And it's not even difficult to use. Literally, just a single click. And if that's too much effort, there's an auto-connect function too. Fully encrypted, no bandwidth throttling, go check out NordVPN right now. Or, you know, finish this episode first, but head on over to nordvpn.com slash offscreen and try them out for yourselves. Risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com slash offscreen screen. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back. We've got two movies to look at with Van until we finish the podcast today. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, in a moment. But first, the big one of the week, of course, it's back. Fast 10. Van has seen it and I know for a fact that you are not going to say this was a bad movie. Oh, no, I'm sure as hell not. I'm going to say, do you know what? One negative thing I am going to say about Fast 10, which, incidentally, I think Fast X is a better Yeah, title. I agree. But verbally is a better title. Right, um, the only negative thing I'm really going to say about this is how do you get to 10 of these and not have the title be Furious, where the I and O are a 10? I mean, come on. It's right there in front of you. And, oh, yeah. oh alas. Good point, okay. good point. So, as you have just pointed out, this is now the 10th chapter of the Fast and Furious series. It's technically the 11th. If you want to go even further, it's technically the 12th, if you include Better Luck Tomorrow, the more or less forgotten Justin Lin movie from 2002. There was, of course, also the spin-off, Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw in 2019, which was my birthday movie that year, incidentally, um, that featured The Rock and Statham going off to fight a nano-powered Idris Elba, a.k.a. Black Superman. And uh, that, until, until now the most fun I had had with this series. Right, so, the idea here is we are taken back to the events of Fast Five in Rio de Janeiro. We literally open back in Brazil with the infamous bank vault sequence from the fifth one of these movies in which Vin Diesel and Paul Walker strapped a bank vault to the back of their cars and drove it through the streets of Rio. Now, it turns out, as, as we, have, we are shown in literally the opening seconds of this movie, that there was another player that we simply were not aware of at the time. Now, this is a retcon, 
they've just they've re- they've retroactively added this into the continuity so it is a textbook retcon and the idea is that the villain of fast five had a son said son was named dante and he is played by jason momoa he during the action sequence of you know the end of fast five is you know, in a car that is struck by said vault and is simply shot out of the side into the water you know left to his watery death which he, of course, survives. He is now back, and he wants blood. And he is determined to exact revenge in a very specific way, because as his dad taught him, never accept death when suffering is owed. And much in the way that Statham did this three movies back, he sets out on the mother of all vendettas going after the family one at a time. This is a clip of Diesel meeting Dante for the very first time. I'm going to tell you, incidentally, one thing that is not in this clip is how he introduces himself, which is the very wonderful delivery of Dante Ashante. Have a listen. You remember my father, Hernan Reyes. My father was a horrible man, very bad daddy. But I kind of liked him, and you took him from me when you stole our money and left us with nothing but suffering. That's what I came here for. To end that suffering. Oh, and I didn't take that money. <laughs> I burned it. I love how they have kind of taken this from Fast Five and mm. connected it, and and I love movies like this where it, where you you can kind of look back and then get reminded of what happened, and then you kind of move forward with the new movie. Um, I mean, with a cast like this, it's it's going to yeah. be great, isn't it? I mean, incidentally, speaking of that cast, by tying this back into the fifth one, we actually do get to see it in flashback. You do get to include Paul Walker that way. Of course. As well. So Paul Walker does obviously get to appear on screen in footage that, you know, is a decade old. So we do still get that presence of Brian. It's worth noting as well. It still makes absolutely zero sense whatsoever as to how his character is simply off screen the entire time babysitting because that's that's how they explain it now. He's just doing the babysitting. Why this trained FBI agent who, you know, last time we saw him, his whole character arc was I missed the action, is staying at home and doing the child minding whilst his sandwich making wife is off doing all the action stuff. I couldn't quite explain because Jordana Brewster's character literally made sandwiches. That, He's protecting that was, the kids. That that was her whole function in the city. She <laughs> she made the sandwiches, literally. And then at different points, she became a racer. And then, much like all of this cast, is now a trained MMA fighter because they can all fight now. They couldn't fight. They couldn't throw a punch in the first movie, but now they're all they, they can hold their own in an octagon. You know what I mean? Like they they yeah. can do that. I mean, John Cena is now the comic relief little brother of this series, which you know, kind of tells you about how well logic flies in this. And speaking of flying, you know, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of cars being shot through the air and stuff like that. Um, after the last movie, when they took a car into space. I, I can say that this feels actually kind of restrained. It, it doesn't feel as insane. It's still bonkers. It's still got cars driving down the sides of buildings and things like that. But once, you know, compared to shooting a car into space, actually works a lot more believably. Um, the big thing of the cast, though, is Jason Momoa. And I genuinely never thought 
But I would be able to say, no, the absolute MVP rock star of this movie is Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa turns up for this playing, first of all, this franchise's version of the Joker. It's the only way I can describe him, and I do specifically mean Heath Ledger's version of the Joker. I will even then add another uh, add another element to that and also describe him as, for lack of a better term, hyper-gay. Best, thing I, best way I can describe it would just be to say he's like a hyper-gay version of the Joker. Like, really. He colour-codes his outfits to match whatever car he's driving like he's a damn Power Ranger. He... <laughs> He wears a fruit salad in his hair. He has Jackie O sunglasses and a granny chain holding them around his neck whilst he wears lilac linen pants to match his lilac car. And it's absolute lunacy of the highest order. There's some great new cast members as well that include uh, Daniela Melchor, who I recently slated in that Assassin Club, if you remember. Remember I, I told you yeah, when we reviewed yeah. that, that she was absolutely dreadful she gets a lot more to do here. As another retconned in character, she has also been retconned into Fast Five as uh, someone tied to, you know, uh, Vin Diesel's prior relationship. Um, we we also get uh, the addition of Alan Richson, best known as TV's Reacher, TV's Jack Reacher, uh, who kind of takes yeah. on the Dwayne Johnson role here. He's kind of getting the lawman hunting them. Uh, role. Scott Eastwood's back as well, and ooh, who else have we got in this? Who I feel, I feel like I'm forgetting this. Oh, Brie Larson. Brie Larson. Captain Marvel herself turns up, which means, yes, you have Captain Marvel and Groot sharing scenes. Other returning players, you know, you've got the usual murderous row. Helen Mirren's back. Uh, you know, Ludacris Tyrese, just like Scott Eastwood. Uh, there's a couple of uh, smaller characters from previous movies. You know, obviously we get a return to Rio in this, so you get to bring back a couple of characters from Fast Five, like the guy who ran the, the street races in that movie and things like that. I, I, I had a lot of fun with this. I think tying it to the fifth one was the smartest thing they could have done because the fifth one is generally regarded as the best of these. It's the point at which this series became its, its final form. It became what we now know a Fast and Furious movie to be. This is, for my money... It's either the second or third best one of the entire franchise. If I'm counting the fifth one as the best one, second one, I'll go with this as the second one and then Hobbs and Shaw as as, as the third. I, I think Hobbs and Shaw is just bloody brilliant. I love Hobbs. I mean, it's Tango and Cash with Jason Statham and The Rock. What's not? Yeah. And Idris. And now, in the director's seat this time around, we have Louis Leterrier who, incidentally, did direct Jason Statham in kind of his first big solo movie, uh, uh, The Transporter, way back when. Also directed uh, The Incredible Hulk for Marvel back in 2008, the Edward Norton one that's still part of the MCU, as far as I understand it. Now, he, interestingly, brings quite a unique directorial flair to this. There is something, there is an added element to the visuals with this, particularly in uh, new new bits that have been added to the, the Rio sequence at the beginning. So when we see the new bits they've added to the flashbacks to basically incorporate Jason Momoa and things like that, they are captured in quite an interesting way. They're quite well realized. There is a camera pull technique that they, they use a few times in this that I think is actually 
something that should become a staple of the series. That camera pull, I would like to see carry on. Le Terrier is apparently staying with the series. And I think that's a very, very good thing because generally when you've got a franchise that goes on for a certain amount of time, you get sort of into the final run of it. And usually then you find the director that's going to take you to the end. Like the Harry Potter series had David Yates, for instance, who came in on the fifth one and just did them all from that point. And then, of course, you know, did the god-awful Fantastic Beasts movies that thankfully have now been shut down. Now, that being said, <laughs> I think Vin Diesel clearly cannot judge a script to save his life because his character makes no sense anymore. Like, really no sense. There is a point, the, the point in our very clip in which he said, I burnt that money, and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, because that was five movies ago, and we've seen how you've been living since then, and we know that some of the other characters damn sure didn't burn their money, because we see them buy, like, you know, private jets and things. So, did, did you just burn yours? And, like, what, did Michelle Rodriguez keep hers? And you know, she, was, actually, she wasn't in that one. Um, did, did The Rock keep some and you were just like borrowing some? How is this? It makes no sense. There's loads of these little internal logic holes. The movie also likes to position itself as this series' answer to Infinity War. However, I, I'm reasonably sure that Infinity War was written with the solution, the eventual resolution to its cliffhanger in mind. This does go for the cliffhanger. However, it is one of those where you can very blatantly tell nobody involved in writing this spared even a second's thought for, okay, well, when we get to 11, how are we going to explain that they got out of this? Because, nah, nah, bruv, nah, not a chance. They just wrote a series of cliffhangers and just said, we'll do that, and then we'll leave it for the next guy to sort. That is absolutely what happened here. And I love it. I think it's absolutely brilliant. The end, the final 10 minutes of this are just unmitigated cinematic vehicular lunacy. The only way I could possibly describe it. Uh, the usual great soundtrack, the, the, the quick editing, the macho posturing, the it's all about family nonsense. It's all there. It's exactly as Lantern George charming as it always has been but kicked up a slight notch in the sense that this is going for a bit more fun. And that's the thing. I feel like a lot of that is coming from, from Momoa as well. His, and his sort of energetic presence does give this movie the nitro boost, the pun intended, that it really needs. And I'm here for it. I haven't had this much fun with one of these movies since Hobbs and Shaw. I thought this was bloody brilliant. This was an absolute five-star ride for me. I want to go see it again. I want to go and see it in 4DX very badly. I really want to see this with the, the, the wind effects and the shaky seats. Just pour it in me. Fast 11 cannot come soon enough. You have got my money, Mr. Diesel, sir. I can't explain why you have more sexual chemistry with Helen Mirren than you do with your own on-screen wife. But again, <laughs> it's a fast movie, baby. Nobody does it better. Suspension of disbelief, and you'll be fine. I don't think I don't think it requires suspension of disbelief to to, to <laughs> buy that you can enjoy sexual chemistry with Helen Mirren. I think we all like to believe that we would enjoy immense sexual chemistry with Helen Mirren, but and I think I think most people, regardless of gender, would like to believe that they would enjoy immense sexual chemistry with Helen Mirren. I, just the woman, just for notes. I meant the whole movie, not the Helen Mirren <laughs> thing. Fair enough. <laughs> So, Fast 10, or Fast X, which does sound better, I agree, in cinemas from 
today. Uh, we've got one brand new movie to look at in a moment. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I have absolutely no idea where this is going to go, but we are going to find out in a minute. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. We've got one more movie to look at that Van has seen this week. Um, and this is called Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. It's out in cinemas from today. But the big question here is, is it worth going to see? I mean, in short, yes. And I'll explain why. So um, you, you're not aware of the uh, the source material, I take it, from, from that. You're not aware of the novel? No. No. Okay, so Are You There, God? Uh, it's Me, Margaret is uh, an iconic work of coming-of-age uh, female literature from Judy Bloom. I think it was published in 1970. So it's taken 53 years to, to reach the screen. It's mostly known to, to men of a certain demographic. The title is mostly known because it's something Deadpool says. It's something Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool says. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. A whole wonderful bit. And I remember it actually being a line of dialogue uh, from Dr. Cox in Scrum in which he says, what in the name of are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Were you thinking? Now, uh, this is a period piece set in 1970. It follows an 11-year-old girl, Margaret, of the title, who's played here by Abby Ryder Fortson, best known to, well, most people, I think, now, as uh, the younger incarnation of Ant-Man's daughter in the first two Ant-Man oh, movies. I know. Because they, they, they recast her for the third one. They, she's played by Catherine Newton in Quantumania as, like, a teenager. Yeah. Abby Ryder Fortson believably plays an 11 year old girl so that kind of tells you yeah now it's a coming of age story about uh margaret's family moving her i think from chicago to the suburbs middle of, as far as she's concerned the middle of nowhere away from everything she loves away from the grandmother that she loves so dearly played by kathy bates of course you, you'd love your nan if she was played by kathy bates her parents are played <laughs> by uh her parents are played by a goddess level rachel mcadams and uh, benny safty you know, one half of the Safdie brothers. And it is, you know, her her journey in you know, journey through the tween years, effectively, about certain bodily changes that young women go through, about that first kiss, about the friendship she forms in these formative years, and about her explorations of uh, of faith and religion. She is given the opportunity to choose, to basically examine different faiths around her because she has parents from differing faiths. I think uh, Rachel McAdams' character comes from a Christian family, while her father is uh, notably Jewish. And so she explores different faiths for herself and tries to determine, you know, which one is the right fit spiritually for her. I've got a clip voice from the very beginning of the movie, and this is Grandma admitting that some things are about to change. That was camp. It was amazing. So you were in a play? Yep. Oh my god, hey, incredible. What are those boxes for? Don't worry about that. I want to hear more about camp. What else you learned? What else did you do? You're moving. What? Really, Mom? Sylvia. Oh, wow. You promised. We're moving? Look, it's... She look, saw the boxes. Yeah, we, she was putting it together. I don't well, think she was. We're moving? Okay, just... We, look, we wanted you to settle in before we sprung the news, but um, your dad got his promotion. Yeah, isn't that great? And we found this great house. Oh, the best Where? house, the best house. Well, that's the thing. We we got really lucky. New and... Jersey. Ah. Oh. New Jersey? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh. This kind of sounds to me like a female Adrian Mole, but a bit more modern. I think Adrian Mole probably owes a great debt to this, if I'm honest. I mean, especially, you know, obviously I have never read Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. 
because I, I, I'm not its target demographic for one thing. I would be quite intrigued to now, having seen the film, I'd be very intrigued to read it. Um, the thing that really hooked me into this and really excited me was that it had been adapted for the screen and directed by Kelly Fremont Craig. Now, Kelly Fremont Craig is not exactly new to this, you know, the, 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 the teenage girl coming of age drama subgenre anyway, given that the reason I'm such a fan of hers is the kind of forgotten Haley Steinfeld uh, teen comedy, Edge of Seventeen, which I think was released, confusingly, in 2016. And absolutely brilliant movie, and she made a hell of an impression on me. Both the star and director of that movie made a hell of an impression on me with that one. And seeing, you know, Ramon Craig get the chance to do this... I'm, I'm, I'm all I'm all in. I'm really all in. Uh, I want to single out as well, Echo Cullum gets to play Margaret's uh, school teacher. Echo Cullum, I think, is most known for being uh, Mr. Terrific, I think, on, on the CW superhero shows. He's in Arrow, originally. He, he, was, he was one of the characters in, in the Green Arrow series, Arrow. He plays the teacher here. I, I really loved this. I, I was really touched by it. I think the writing is such... And, and I shouldn't be sh shocked by this, because if I'm using Edge of Seventeen as a comparison point, the evidence was all there in advance. Kelly from Craig brings a sharpness to this that I'm sure was probably there in the original in the original text because the original text is you know a, an absolutely sacred text to a lot of people the world over. So I would imagine there there are people who have waited the 53 years to see this, and I can absolutely understand why. I have never in my life been this invested in a young woman's period. Not even kidding. Like it's an actual <laughs> it's an actual narrative arc and I have never been this emotionally invested. Which is not a thing I expected I was going to say to you today Mr. Ball. Me either. Um, me either. Yeah. Um Abby Radafortson's uh, performance in the lead brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And I understand why she, she had to be recast for uh, for Ant-Man Quantumania because there was a passage of time element in the MCU. You have to jump forward five years, etc. So I understand why you know, that, that was not the case. But uh, you do get the impression that people over at Marvel are going to be watching like clips of this movie thinking, good Lord, what we could have had. And yeah, it's a, it's a great turn. It is a really stellar performance from an just impressively gung-ho young actress. Like she's really bringing, she's bringing considerable heft for her age, for her experience, considerable dramatic heft to this. But also, she's disarmingly charming. Like she, she can, she can really, she can reduce you down. She can really break you down with this performance. It's a really solid turn. I think it's something absolutely everyone should see. I think it's an, an absolutely essential sort of mother-daughter kind of a movie like I could see this uh. definitely becoming one of those you know like right you know those mum daughter bonding cinema trips kind of thing but also it's one of those movies that you know is going to live on forever on home platforms when this when this hits home platforms this is going to become a revisited go-to watch for a lot of people and like I say it made made me want to go back and read the novel. So you know, take from that what you will. And you know, you know me as a person. I I don't strike you as the kind of person that would want to run out and read. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. But this won me hard. So two for two, Kelly. Two for two in sold. Didn't you? I've not even gotten to how great Rachel McAdams is because again, she's awake. So yeah. There you go. Two thumbs up from me. I absolutely loved it. I think worth the 53 years it took to get onto the screen. 
I can tell how much you loved it because you didn't once in that seven and a half minutes mention how long it was. Oh, no, did I? No, hang on. It's, oh, it's actually about an hour and 40, <laughs> I think. Hour 46, which is, again, it's, it's the per- perfect runtime, 106. Like I say, that's how you do it, son, 106. Excellent. All right. Well, if you want to see it, are you there? God, it's me. Margaret is out in cinemas from today. Uh, so we've got quite a few movies out next week. Let's look at some of the uh, some of the uh, the headliners. So we've got the Fairy Troublemaker. This is. I think this looks like a sort of cheap and cheerful animated one. Which yeah, fair enough. Occasion, occasionally you get some. I mean, Fly Me to the Moon is one of those that actually won me over like that. And then the other end of the spectrum, we have some like epic tales, which we did a few weeks ago. Uh, 406 Days and a Crack in the Mountain, I'm not too familiar with. Um, Sisu is out next week as well. Now, this is a, I think this is a Norwegian action film from the director of Big Game. It's a period piece, and it involves a, a, a man in the, I think it's the Icelandic wilderness, going feral and fighting Nazis. Oh, in. I mean, I, I know people who've seen it, and apparently it is hyper-violent and extreme. I can't wait. Um, there is the Ben Affleck starring Robert Rodriguez-directed thriller Hypnotic out next week as well, which opened in the States last week and bombed, so uh, don't know what's going to happen with that one. Um, the Return of Paul Schrader is next week. Now, Paul Schrader bringing out a new movie is always interesting. It's a, It can be a good time, it can be a bad time, but it's always an interesting time, and this time around he's bringing Joel Edgerton along for the ride in a movie called Master Gardener. So... I, I don't know what that's about. If I'm honest, they, they had me at a Paul Schrader movie. They, they had me at Paul Schrader's got a movie out. I'm like, cool, don't tell me any more about it. Don't need to know. Don't need to know. Don't care, mate. Just, it's, you've got Paul Schrader's name above the, above the title. You've got my money. Strap me in. Uh, and of course, the big ticket for next week, and you know for a fact that I'm seeing this on Sunday morning, sir, um, yeah. is the, the live action adaptation. God help us, because this could go either way. Of Walt Disney's The Little Mermaid. How is that going to go? I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of that one. I mean, have you seen the clips? I've seen some of them. It looks incredible. Terribly lit. I don't know why they can't like these movies anymore. Kiss the Girl (laughs) looks... I could barely see what was going on in the Kiss the Girl. Have you heard about the price of electricity? Well, yeah, Cozzy Living, love. Cozzy Living, yeah. Um... (laughs) I mean, the other thing as well, and I had this with Beauty and the Beast, when they redesigned the characters in Beauty and the Beast to make them work in live action, they had to make them look like real things, obviously. Some of them looked quite weird. Like, I still think Lumiere looked odd in, in that one. Um, but doing that for Little Mermaid has led to some horrific redesigns, particularly with Flounder, who now is just a fish, and, uh, and Sebastian, <laughs> who is now just a crab which also weirds me out because i'm reasonably sure sebastian was a lobster not a crab yeah i thought he was yeah but okay and he's voiced by david diggs now so i mean wow yeah that's gonna be um really interesting especially the amount of emails it took for me to get you in that screening this weekend yeah yeah thank you for that (laughs) i really appreciate that mate i mean i'm you know what it is it's because i'm not an influencer so the good people at disney don't give a toss anymore so uh, that's that's really it. I mean, unless unless you're farting on TikTok for the masses, I don't think Disney really care about your existence anymore. But uh, so thank you for that. It's nice to know that BBC badge still has some clout. Cheers, love. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I hope you enjoy it. We'll hear all about it, of course, uh, next week. That's all we've got time for this week on Off Screen. I've been Adam Ball. 
I've been Van Connor, and we shall return.